Dave Fanning on 2FM. Now, the Tastemaker charts the singular life of a man who's been at the beating heart of music's most groundbreaking and amazing moments for over 60 years and features stories of his time working with everybody from the Ronettes to the Beatles, Elton John to the Rolling Stones. In one way, he's rock history's best kept secret and his book is the inside story of some of the greatest musicians of all time told by the man who might have known them best. So welcome to the programme, Tony King, um, the Tastemaker himself. In other words, Tony, your early years, late 1950s England. You find out your parents aren't your parents, they're actually your grandparents but you call them your parents for the rest of your life because they were so good to you. You did feel a bit cheated by your real parents though. So you say right, I'm gay, I'm out of here and you go to London because it was the place to go to but you had no idea that London was going to turn into the swinging 60s did you? No, no whatsoever. I mean I knew at that point that the the 50s were going on which was great for me. I love the 50s I love rock and roll and I love dancing and, and and that's all I knew. I didn't know what was I didn't see foresee what was going to develop but all I, I was just a sort of post-war rock and roll child. Yeah, and like you know, let's jump straight in then. I mean, you started chauffeuring people around some of these American bands like the Ronettes and the Crystals and you know Chris Montez and Little Eva and all of these people. I mean, like did you learn an awful lot from them or did you just were you just taking it day by day and having a laugh? I took it day by day. I mean, I was a very young guy. I was 19 years old when I first started and I was told to go to the airport and pick up Brenda Lee. Mm. And I, I just got on with it, you know, and I went I went to the airport, picked her up, put her in the hotel, did all the press things that we were supposed to do together. And um, uh, and then the same thing happened with Roy Orbison, with Little Eva, with Della Reese, with Johnny Tillotson, with Del Shannon, I mean, I just went on and on and on, <laughs> looking after people. And do you think you learned more from some other than others? I mean, you did say there was one thing you did learn, which is professionalism, if you like. Brenda Lee might have been one of the first, but the Ronettes had it too. Yes. They, well, they were great to work with, the Ronettes. They showed up on time. They did the job they were supposed to do. And they didn't give me a, 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 yeah. a difficult time at all. Most of the artists I worked with, to be honest with you, were very, very nice and they're very easy to deal with. You know, sometimes you, you'd have a little bit of a, a, a glitch would happen, but nothing really serious. You know, I can't even remember uh, anything where it, it wasn't but easy or a pleasure. You know, it was yeah. work, though. It was hard work. You had to... You know, to be sharp, to look after people. <laughs> yeah, speaking of being sharp, I mean, first of all, you were enamoured with people who knew what they were doing. That really appealed to you. But you had taste and that appealed to a lot of other people too. You realised that people would employ you because of that. I mean, you weren't necessarily ambitious. You were just damn good at what you did. Yeah, and I wasn't. Sorry, thank you for saying that because I wasn't particularly ambitious. Mm. Um, I was ambitious to to do as good a job as possible you know, given the circumstances. But I, I didn't have any great goal in mind. I wasn't looking, thinking, oh, I can become this and I can become that. I was just flying by the seat of my pants and happy to do what I had to do. And I was professional and I had good taste and I knew what to do with people. You know, I instinctively understood artists and how to work with them. That was my talent. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, as I said earlier, the, the book is called the, the, the Tastemaker, My Life with the Legends and Geniuses of Rock Music. It's on Faber and Faber. And Tony, just a few things. I, mean, I want to talk Beatles, obviously, but not just yet. Um, swing in London, I want to take that again, because there is a, something like there's 10 decades in any century. There's something about 
the 1960s. Did you feel that? Did you feel it then or looking back that teenagers were now in a position of genuine power and maybe they hadn't been ever before? Precisely. Yeah. <laughs> you've, nailed, you've nailed it in one. Post-war England, all of a sudden, it started developing in, uh, you know, in the mid-50s yeah. when Elvis came along. And then all of a sudden, as a result of that, the clothing started happening. People started to wear more fashionable looking clothes. People started to be going to record stores to buy records. Uh, And then in the 60s, it it blossomed. You know, the filmmakers were making films, fashion people, Mary Quant, John Stevens. Yeah. uh, And then, of course, the Beatles, the Stones, it just turned into... And all of a sudden, young people had expensive cars yeah you know, yeah pop stars mostly but they were there you know and all of a sudden young people had a voice and they 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 uh were to be listened to you know okay so i mean like the whole idea that like for instance like andrew lou goldham is a very famous man who really was very savvy with the rolling stones as manager etc and um, one of the things like you have in there is the first time anybody heard the song satisfaction outside the rolling stones was you right well, I mean, yes, one of the first people, for sure. I went to talk to Andrew for an interview, job interview, to work for him. And uh, he says to me, we've just finished this song um, in Hollywood. Do you want to hear it? So I said, yeah, sure. So he played me Satisfaction, and I was completely blown away. I mean, to hear it then, in the, in the early 60s, where, you know, it was it was even better than, like, if you heard it now for the first time. You know what I mean? It, yeah, just, yeah. it just kind of took off and became an almost like an anth- a rock and roll anthem of the time, oh, you yeah. know? It yeah. was just an amazing... And everybody was talking about it. Even the Beatles were talking about it. John Lennon was running around London saying, you've got to listen to the Stones record. It's fantastic, you know? But like also, when you, like, you know, the, you went to the immediate record label, George Martin was headhunting you, etc. You had pub with Dick James, all of these big names. You're right there in the middle of it all. But Elton John, was he just hanging around? And was he Reg Dwight then and not Elton John? Well, I met him when he was Reg, when he was a songwriter for Dick James Music with Bernie. And at that time, there was a lot of singer, a lot of songwriters about Barry Mason, yeah. um, Cook and Green, uh, Green Away, you know, uh, a lot. Uh, there was a market for songwriters because people were recording songs that people um, that people wrote to cover. So he was one, a songwriter, but he also had ambitions to be an artist. Yeah. Then he started making records under his own name, you know, and started to develop as an artist. He was very much influenced by the singer-songwriter school, you know, Jackson Brown and people yeah. like that. Yeah. And that's that's how he started out. He wasn't sort of like this big showman that he became. Oh, no, obviously not. I mean, like, you got him a lot of session work. So, I mean, he ain't heavy. He's my brother. Cat Stevens stuff, the BG, status quo, moody blues, etc. And, like, you know, you'd ring up and the mum would answer the phone and say, oh, yeah, hold on, uh, Reg is here. He's cleaning the car. Uh, uh, Reg, somebody, at least Tony here is offering you three quid an hour for three hours. That's nine hours, um, sorry, nine quid to go to Abbey Road and record. Yeah, with- <laughs> yeah I called his, his mum up. <laughs> I said, Sheila, that was his mum, 
Uh, I said, Sheila, I've got a job for for Reg. It's nine quid. And she said, oh, he's cleaning the car. I'll go and ask him. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, so, like, when you went to New York then, and, like, I mean, like, you've been with Elton John all the way up, right up to now, in fact. And, um, you know, the, you went to the Continental Baths in New York uh, City. Was that a bit of an eye-opener for you? Oh, totally. Well, as a, as a gay man... To go to the Continental Baths was <laughs> was something was something of an experience, you know. I mean, I I had never been to such a place, you know. Uh, I was living in England, and it was it was kind of parochial compared to New York. I mean, New York gay life was something else, you know. And I went to the Continental Baths, and I couldn't believe it. They had a dance floor, they had a hairdressing salon, they had. All sorts, and Bette Midler used to sing there, and Barry Manilow did the, the musical arrangements. She used to entertain all the guys would sit around with their towels on, watching Bette Midler sing. And of course, there were rooms where people went to misbehave, shall we say? And um, so I sampled it all. <laughs> you did indeed. There's an awful lot of misbehaving in the book. I mean, with everybody, there really, really was a strange time. I just want to take a look though at the Beatles part of all of you, because John Lennon in particular. Um, you were kind of um, Let's Dance, Chris Montez, uh, BBC, uh, the lo- Lower Region Street, and in come the Beatles. These four guys to I don't think they were recording. They were promoting Love Me Do. Is that it? They were promoting their second single, Please Please Me. Oh, Please Please Me, right, okay. And, you know, they'd go in and you thought, yeah, these guys look kind of funny, all right, you know, they looked like very confident, good laugh. And then, like, Tony Hall would have his Mayfair parties. And the night before they went to the Ed Sullivan show, they were there really excited. Just tell me all about that. Well, Tony and Mafalda, his wife, had a very nice flat on Green Street. And George and Ringo lived opposite in Green Street, too. They had a little flat. And they were already getting ready to go to America because their record, I Want to Hold Your Hand, had become a number one record in America. And up until then, Love Me Do, Please Please Me, all the early ones, From Me to You, they had not made an impression. But then all of a sudden, they they hit it big in America with I Want to Hold Your Hand. And so they were getting ready to go to America to appear on the Ed Sullivan Show. So Tony threw this party and Ron and the Ronettes and Phil Spector were in town. So we had the Ronettes, Phil Spector and the Beatles. And we had this great party bef- to see them off to New York. And they were like very excited. They didn't know that it was going to be what it turned out yeah. to be. Arriving at the airport and thousands of screaming kids. They had no idea. They just were, they were just looking forward to going to New York and experiencing being in America as pop stars, you know? Well, the funny thing is, like, I mean, like, you know, it was going to be big to be on the Ed Sullivan show because the show was very big, but nobody had any idea that it was going to turn out to be just as seismic as it was, just that one visit. But you say, you make it look like that when they came back, which wasn't, like, they weren't there for very long, they were different people, were they? Very much so, yeah. I mean, because they they went from being the Beatles into being the Beatles, Yeah. I mean, you know, all of a sudden they became a world phenomenon. And so they had that. You can't you cannot not be affected by that. You know, it's going to affect you in some way or other. There was something about them. I guess they had a sense of their own importance at that point. 
Okay, but also, like, I mean, when you look at this book, The Tastemaker, by the way, My Life with the Legends and Geniuses of Rock Music, and we're talking to Tony King. I mean, you come through as a gopher, a promotion guy, a publicist, an A&R person, a manager, a label boss, a creative director, every single thing. I mean, like, you know, you, know, you wanted to have a good time and hang with the stars and get paid, and that's what you got, and that's what you did. Just... Take it forward a few years. Ringo, New York and May Pang and John Lennon's Mind Games album. What happened there? Did she ask you to get involved? That was in, uh, I was in Los Angeles at the time. Mm-hmm. And looking after, pulling in all, all the Ringo, the elements for the Ringo album together because uh, Capital needed some help. And the guy at, the, at, at Capital Dennis Colleen had met me in London and he said to the Capitol people, there's this guy at Apple who's very smart. We should fly him over and get him to sort things out because he, he works closely with the musicians and he know, he, he'll, he'll be able to help. So I came and I did. I pulled it all together, the artwork and everything, tapes, blah, blah, blah. I got it all done. And uh, the, everybody was very happy with me, very satisfied. I'm getting ready to come back to London and May Pan called me and she said, are you, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm getting ready to leave for, for London. She said, can you hang on? Because John wants to talk to you and we're coming in tomorrow. So the next day they arrived, I went, I took them out for dinner. Uh, couldn't park the car. The famous story in the book about me trying to park the car. Yes. <laughs> John said, um, I've got an album coming out called Mind Games. I'd like you to stay on and do what you did for Ringo's album and put it all together for me. And and I said, fine. And he said, and if you could help me oversee the promotion and give me some ideas about what to do. I said, yeah, okay, fine. So I stayed on uh, right up until Christmas. So I'd been there. By the time I left, I'd been there over three months. And during the course of that time, John said to me he would like me to come and work for him in America. So the following year, in fact, I did come back and live in America and work for him then. But when we were doing the Mind Games commercial, um, I was dressed as the Queen of England, which is a, a part. It's also available on, um, if you look it up, Mind Games commercial, John Lennon Mind Games commercial, you'll see me dancing with John right. uh, in the Imagine film. I had, <laughs> uh, I had to, because I did this impersonation of the Queen advertising mind games it made john laugh and he said i'd like you to do it as a tv commercial and i did another as you do kind of yeah, moment yeah you know? yeah and as you do kind of moments. there's lots of as you do kind of moments here like there's a lot of drugs going on like i mean after dark on melrose in la um out of control basically you come home you have concord madness and your mum's only question is kind of you know what do you pay for butter in the u.s and of course you realize you were on such a different planet they were just sort of almost silly questions just the whole thing you had to stop because it was just too much um did you give it all up in the early 1980s yeah, I did in 1981. Did you feel you were burnt out? No, but I thought I was on my way. Because, you know, like there, like there's plenty of stuff there with Elton John and Freddie Mercury, etc. Like, I mean, you were there for the end of Freddie Mercury. You were there. In fact, you were in a legendary nightclub till six o'clock in the morning in New York with Freddie. And, you know, at this stage you were sober and he just wanted to stay and you just wanted to go home to bed. Yeah, because I was drinking Perrier. Yeah, right. <laughs> I was, by this time, I was in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'd been sober six weeks, I think it was. And then Freddie came into town and said, oh, I'm here, I'm here. So I said, I went out for dinner with him and his friends. And then we all ended up down at, at the Anvil, which was this serious after hours bar where all kinds went on. 
And Freddie used to love it because it was the music was mad and it was a mad atmosphere. And he used to say to me, "Oh, darling, it's just like Berlin." And I'd be standing there with my perio, thinking, "Yes, mm. I've, can I please go home?" <laughs> but also, like with Freddie, towards the end in the last few days, I mean, he spent time with the Christie's um, catalogue. And he was just buying stuff out of the catalogue. And you were going, what are you doing? What what else am I going to do with my money? I'm not going to be here for too long. Well, the thing about him is he was a very noble, sophisticated man. He was a a classy man. And he, he he held his own right up till the end. He didn't, he wasn't complaining. Yeah. And he started buying things and then the, one afternoon, I remember the beautiful Tiso painting was bought in a lovely woman in a red dress. And that was held up for him to look at. And he turned around to me and he said, look at her. Isn't she wonderful? Isn't she wonderful? And in, indeed she was. But the nobility of him was that he wasn't complaining about himself. He was busy yeah. loving this painting. Yeah, indeed, of course. Yeah, but also with you, then personally, just want to get to one or two last bits. And you know, you're going along a street, coming back from some place late at night, and it's the public phone box, and it start the phone starts ringing. I mean, seriously, you pick up the phone, and it's more or less God, or well, it's a priest, and it's like Tony, how are you? Now they had no, I mean, sp- explain exactly what happened. Well, I didn't know that he was a priest. The, the, I, I, I was on my way back from a bar down on the waterfront, and. Um, the phone, street phone rang and I was a bit pissed. I had a few Budweiser's and so I thought, oh, I'm going to pick up the phone. So he was there. And the voice said, hello, Tony, is that you? And I said, I was like, hello. <laughs> I said, yes, I'm Tony, but I don't think I'm the Tony you want. He said, no, you're not. He said, but you're charming nonetheless. And so we started talking and I said, um, I don't know why I said it out of the blue. I To this day, I don't know why I said it, but I said, are you a religious man? And he said, if, if by that question, do you mean um, I believe her? The answer is yes. And I said, would you meet me for dinner and talk about that? Because I was always interested in Catholicism and I had wanted to be a Catholic. And so we met and then over dinner, he told me he was a priest, which was a complete shock. And so he was the one who helped me cross over into the Catholic Church in New York in 1982. I was... Uh, I, I had got sober in 1981. I started going to the catechumenate for, for, to become a Catholic at the end of 1981. And at Easter of 1982, the priest who had dinner with me stood next to me at the altar and, uh, as my sponsor to become a Catholic. And I think you probably found it difficult, the idea. You didn't think you could reconcile faith with being Catholic, with being gay at the same time as well, and realise that's certainly no impediment. And this man helped you greatly and all of that. I mean, there's there's too much, Tony. I just want to mention one or two things, though. I mean, do you think you were a product of your time, still are? Do you think in some ways that, like, because of the time that you were living in, that anything goes, anything could happen, and everything did happen? Yes, very much so. And it carried on happening, you know. But when I went to work for Elton in the last eight years of my career, that was much more structured and much more organised. Yeah. OK, but hold on, hold on. Maybe it was. But, I mean, you do have the story in the book, and we've heard this story before, but not from your side of it, which is, you know, El- Elton was the biggest star in the world. Your, the Blue Moves album, the launch, 
Um, you know, he's kind of, you know, there's limos going all over the place. There's a lot of sort of bad fighting with his manager, John Reed, the Dodger Stadium concert, etc. And he decides to end it all and commit suicide. And he jumps into a swimming pool. And it was very dangerous because he was wearing a dressing gown, which was dragging him down to the end. And you're, one of your main observations is the grandmother asking for a cigarette, a specific type, as, as he was drowning. She said, oh, do you know, um, she said to Elton's mother, do you know, oh, I've had enough of this. Do you know where my number six are, <laughs> Sheila? <laughs> <laughs> had enough of this Elton's histrionics, yeah? <laughs> Elton, Elton drowning in the pool while his grandmother went to look for her number six. <laughs> right, indeed, yeah, my God, it's amazing. Well, you've been with Elton now all, all the way along, right through, really, yeah, from the very I, beginning. I, Elton and I are still great friends. We talk on the phone all the time. I spoke to him day before yesterday he's very he's so supportive of the book he wants the book yeah. to do well he wants me to succeed at this book because we we have a great love for each other we i i just love elton he's like my brother you know yeah well you really helped him so much in the early days and also um elton's partner david furnish has said that uh, you tony have an impeccable eye for champion aesthetic brilliance and that's one of the things that you've always had and one of the things that is sort of i don't know seeing you in good stead if you like look there's too much there's absolutely this litany of happy accidents that has happened in your life it's bizarre an amazing story that you were there for it all and you still are you've invited everybody to take a front seat and I, I invite them to do it too it's brilliant The Taste Maker is what it's called My Life with the Legends and Geniuses of Rock Music it's Faber and Faber Tony King Tony it's been a real pleasure thank you so much for talking with us Well I hope it has <laughs> I hope I've made I hope I've made sense <laughs> you made a lot of sense Tony thank you very much Alright Alright good luck Bye. Take it easy Bye. Bye Dave Fanning on 2FM